Arthrex has been helping surgeons treat their patients better for more than 40 years. Differentiate your practice by offering the nano experience, which combines patient comfort with leading-edge, extremely minimal invasive technology. Arthrex nanoarthroscopy scopes and instrumentation are ideal for small joint access and visualization across the body. Deeply committed to surgeon support and patient education, Arthrex has also introduced the nanoexperience.com, patient resource illustrating the scientific benefits of nanoarthroscopy, detailing a wide variety of applications, and directing patients to surgeons in their area. Visit nano.arthrex.com to learn more about enhancing your practice and providing optimal patient outcome with this game-changing technology. Also, this episode would not have been possible without the Journal of Medical Insight, otherwise known as JOMI. Uh, JOMI is a peer-reviewed surgical video journal slash virtual operating theater. JOMI films and publishes surgical procedures performed by top teaching physicians in an effort to make it possible for residents, attendings, medical students, clinical staff, and patients to have a rich, high-quality didactic experience and being walked through procedures from incision to closure by the operating surgeon. Uh, Jomi has filmed at the Mass Gen Hospital, at Brigham's and Women's Hospital, and multiple other hospitals. And uh, one of the surgeons is actually going to be on this episode here today. Find out more at jomi.com and use the code NAILEDIT for a 20% off on all subscriptions. And now, everybody, welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And today we're on episode 101. Yeah, we have crossed 100 episodes. We are on 101. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about distal biceps injuries, Uh, distal bicep tendon injuries. Definitely something that you'll see when you are rotating through your sports rotation or really at some time through residency, you'll see these. Uh, These are pretty common. Uh, They happen. I've seen a good, good handful of them. And uh, we have a great episode in store for you all today. So today we actually have Dr. Ilias, who is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon uh, with a certificate of added qualification in hand surgery. Uh, so he specializes in anything hand, wrist, elbow, and then some trauma uh, stuff as well, which he'll actually talk about in the first couple minutes of our talk here today. All right, he is actually at the Rothman uh, Institute. He serves as a consulting hand surgeon to both the Philadelphia 76ers as well as the Philadelphia Eagles, the NFL team. So again, we have a great episode in store for you all today. Uh, Dr. Elias is very, uh, has done a lot. His, his resume is very impressive. And he spent some time with us today to talk about distal biceps injuries. So we, again, we go over kind of the epidemiology, some of the anatomy mechanism. We talk about how to treat them you know what do we how do you treat it operatively how do you treat chronic tears how do you treat partial tears so we dive into a lot so without further ado go ahead and enjoy the episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast Adelias, welcome to the nailed it ortho podcast uh so happy to have you on so welcome to the podcast it's an absolute uh, pleasure to be here i'm really impressed with what you guys are doing and what uh what an effective educational platform you guys are creating. So good job oh. with that. Yeah, that's very nice. Very nice of you to say. And so at the beginning of our podcast, we always start off asking our guests a couple of questions, just getting to know them a little bit better. And we'll just start off with, with a general question is what, what are you, what does your practice consist of now? Like, what are you most, most often, like, what are, what are you doing? What does it, what does it look like? Yeah. I mean, 95% of the time I'm doing uh, upper extremity surgery from hand to shoulder um, hand, wrist, elbow, shoulder. My shoulder is mostly non-sports shoulder at this point. I've shrunk that part out of it. 
Um, and but basically that's that's the crux of it uh, full time uh, up in Philly. And I can talk a little bit about that. I, I practice up at the Rothman Institute. Um, and uh, so I operate in our affiliated facilities, including Jefferson and the mainline health system hospitals. Um, I run our uh, hand surgery fellowship as well um, at the at the uh, at Rothman. And I wear a couple other hats. I most recently also have started doing some work uh, beyond Jefferson at, at uh, Drexel College of Medicine, where I'm now actually vice chair of orthopedic surgery there as we're starting to, to rebuild uh, that department uh, as well. Hey, very, very busy, very accomplished, <laughs> very busy guy. And, uh, and, and we have a lot of, of residents that listen to this that are you know trying to choose what specialty they want to go into. And uh, we also hear that you, you take care of a lot of the athletes. Can you kind of tell us a little bit more about uh, your interaction with athletes and athletes from from which teams and, and what, 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 is, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I'll answer your question in two parts because because you did mention that, it, that most of the audience are are folks training in orthopedics. Uh, so yep. first of all, that's uh, there are smart folks, so they chose a great specialty. Orthopedic surgery is fantastic, and like I mentioned, I'm 95 percent upper extremity. The other five percent is basically I still do general orthopedic trauma, so I still take trauma trauma call uh, on the weekends and other and and my designated days, which I, I've always enjoyed doing. Um, and I was trying to role model for my trainees that you can be a hand surgeon or a sports surgeon, joint surgeon, still do be a, be a fracture surgeon. Um, and I think it's one of the best parts of, of orthopedic surgery. Um, in terms of specialties, I think upper extremity surgery is, is a fantastic specialty for a number of reasons. Uh, one is I think that it encompasses all aspects of orthopedics in one limb. So you're doing fracture work, nerve work, tendon work, uh, scope work, arthritis work, tumor work young and old athletes, non-athletes, um, the whole gamut uh, of orthopedics. Um, secondly, people do well in uh, upper extremity surgery uh, compared to some of our counterparts and other specialties. Uh, thirdly, we can do mostly outpatient surgery, which is a secret to um, you know uh, having a good lifestyle in terms of people going home. I just was doing an inpatient case and it takes me you know just twice as long to do that case compared to that same case in the surgical center. Um, yeah. So it's really, and, and, and there's a ton of demand. I train fellows every year and I'm shocked by the amount of demand it is for their services. Um, and, and lastly, I'd say is you, you have a choice in terms of how complex of a practice you want to have. You can have a very bread and butter practice where you are doing carpals and triggers and distress fractures, or you can have a really complex practice where you're doing replants and reconstructions of, of, of amputated limbs or, or uh, break complexes, reconstructions or, or what have you. So it's really, there's a lot you can do with that career. And you're always like a valuable member of an orthopedic practice. Um, you know, your last part question was uh, athletes. Uh, I've been very fortunate to be uh, to be involved with taking care of uh, pretty elite athletes. Um, I'm, I'm the consultant hand surgeon for the Philadelphia Eagles um, and was formerly the consultant hand surgeon for the 76ers. We just recently lost that contract this past year. So unfortunately, uh, not with them at this time, but uh, have operated on the likes of, you know, Joel Embiid and all those guys before and all the Eagles now that have upper extremity injuries. Um, and I also cover a lot of other um, D1 uh, sports and uh, teams in the area like Villanova and St. Joe's. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. You're a sports fellow. So you kind of know a little bit about that, the, the culture of uh, treating athletes. It's a different dynamic and it's exciting. And frankly, yeah. growing up as a Philadelphia guy, it's an, an honor to, to be able to treat some of our kind of our best athletes. Yeah, yeah. Hats off to you. Very accomplished and, and very, very busy. Uh, uh, very busy gentleman, and, and that's that's amazing to 
to hear and and know that you're you know you're doing all these things and I, you're so busy that before we even met through through um through email I actually saw videos that you made on Jomi the Journal of uh, Medical Insight that was actually my first introduction to you when I was a learner uh, sitting back and trying to learn different surgical techniques and you crafted these these beautiful videos uh you know that really break down a lot of surgery techniques including this one here that we'll talk about today what kind of got you involved in uh in creating surgical videos and education uh, I mean, fundamentally, it's it's because of my role as an edu- as a surgical educator, um, and uh, you know, I I trained in in the early two thousands, and you know, things have changed in in that you know twenty year window since you know, since my own training, um, and I realized that most folks are really learning heavily from videos, uh, different websites, social media, et cetera, and I just kind of embrace that reality is that. Uh, video learning is really kind of uh, the thrust of what's going on. And I think where video learning is really, really most helpful is frankly, surgical uh, uh, education, because that's, it's a very, it's a very uh, visually intensive and manually intensive, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, technique and reading it is less, arguably less effective. So I kind of embrace that. And, you know, I have a lot of learners with me all the time and they're cycling through every six to eight weeks. So I felt like, you know, creating a library of, of common cases that I do would be helpful. And actually, um, I'll talk about Jomi, but prior to Jomi, um, I started my own um, channel on ViewMedi. It's called Rothman Hand Surgery, where I have basically um, probably 50 to 80 videos of all the common procedures uh, that uh, we do in the upper extremity. Um, and then that kind of um, transition to my work with Jomi, which is a journal of medical insight, which is a peer-reviewed journal uh, for the surgical specialties, where they uh, where video education and video articles is is um, the medium uh, that we use. And um, I'm editor for the um, uh, part of the ortho the upper extremity part of the orthopedic. Uh, section uh, of Jomi. And and it's not just orthopedic only, it's all the different surgical specialties as well. Yeah, well, I must, I just want to, if nobody's told you now, I would like to say thank you, because I definitely watch your videos in, in preparing for some cases uh, in residency. So uh, again, great videos for those watching, or for those listening to this, go definitely go check it out. And uh, and we can transition to today's topic, where we're talking a little bit about uh, distal bicep tendon injuries, which I've seen a lot and a lot more. I saw a lot in residency and now I've seen a bunch in, in my fellowship as well. And so uh, I guess in your experience, which, what, what patients are, are, are coming to you with this, you know, wh- who are you definitely, who are you seeing that are, that are having these distal biceps injuries? Yeah. Basically people like me, so middle-aged men, that's the, that's <laughs> the, that's the, that's the, the kind of the largest bulk of, of the patient population um, almost, it's almost rarely in women. Interestingly, it's almost always men, um, and usually in middle age. So you're seeing people in their fifth, sixth, seventh decade of life that are presenting with these injuries. Yeah. And in what is the typical mechanism, uh, of injuries of, of how this occurs? Yeah. The classic teaching you're going to re- read about is the eccentric contracture of the biceps with biceps is firing, but also elongating. And that causes that that tension and, and the weak link in the chain uh, is often the distal biceps. It can be the proximal biceps as well, which is interestingly, we treat it completely differently than the distal biceps, which I always found to be an interesting paradox. 
um, and uh, you're lifting something heavy, like in this image, um, it's often a sudden motion or jerking motion is a sudden extension, sudden firing. Um, and oftentimes it's, it's just a pop and they feel that. And there's interestingly, it's, it's, it's tender in the beginning. It's, it's painful in the beginning. Uh, and, and the classics, uh, we can talk about the exam features, but um, yeah, you're typically carrying something or, or, or doing something sudden like that. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. If you want to go, go into exam features, but just like you said, middle-aged man, uh, yeah. typically carrying I mean, something I mean, eccentric. Yeah. Way. The, the the classic the classic uh you know things you'll see on exam is first the history that they're lifting something felt a pop or a strain it tends to be very well localized in the anterior elbow you know when people complain of elbow pain common things are common so you're often looking at the lateral epicondyle medial epicondyle um but this is often right in the anterior aspect of the elbow um and you'll often see bruising that's a big tell so you'll see a bruising and often in the um anterior aspect in the antecubital fossa region, which is a big tell. And obviously the probably the biggest tell is deformity of the bicep. So if it's a it's a if it's a fully ruptured and retracted biceps, you can see it from the door when you walk in when the bicep is sitting really high. But that's not always the case. You can have a, a complete biceps tear with minimal retraction uh, if the lacertus is maintained or no deformity again if there's a partial tear. Uh, but so when it's completely torn and retracted, it's obvious, but that doesn't mean that if it's not, that there isn't uh, possibly a biceps injury. And on exam, you can do a few things. Um, you can check resisted elbow flexion. Uh, I find that generally is not that helpful because the brachialis is your stronger flexor, uh, and that's obviously intact. Uh, but resisted form supination is the tell. Your supinator, uh, your biceps is your primary supinator. And the moment you isolate them and have them resist against, uh, supinate against resistance, they'll fail and you'll get that immediate um, complaint of pain and, and evident weakness. <laughs> and then the common thing, as you've shown in your PowerPoint here, is, is the hook test, where you can physically put try to hook your finger around um, the bicep tendon uh, when they're firing it. And sometimes it helps to compare from side to side for any of these things, particularly with the hook test, because some folks are thin and you can really feel their biceps tendon and others you really can't. So I don't find the hook test as useful necessarily diagnostic, if you will, because like I mentioned, sometimes they'll have a complete tear that's not retracted or a partial tear. The hook test may be normal in those patients, right? But when you go against resisted form supination and bruising anteriorly, those two to me are, are common tells short of obviously deformity. Yeah. And you mentioned something about partial tears. <clears throat> I, I want to get back to that in a second, but can we briefly, because you mentioned the lactorus and other kind of anatomic um, um features or things to know about the anatomy of the distal biceps. So can you kind of just quickly just go over what is the relevant anatomy of the distal biceps uh, that we should think about that we need to know when we're, especially when we're, when we're talking about just like, you know, anatomical features this is what you should know. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of things you need to know. Um, <clears throat> first of all, the bicep tendon is actually pretty small relative to the biceps musculature. So one of the reasons why we often see it more commonly in, in folks who, again, anyone can get it, particularly middle-aged men, but we'll often see it more in, in uh, folks who are heavy lifters um, kind of later in their careers, particularly if they were using steroids, uh, because there's this kind of like imbalance with this, this size and strength in the delta, I'm mean, sorry, the, the biceps relative to relatively small um, uh, biceps tendon because the tendon doesn't hypertrophy over time like a biceps musculature can. So it's often the weak link. Um, there's a short and long head of the biceps, which frankly, anatomically is hard to discern the different distinction of, uh, other than just knowing from like an in-training perspective that the long head 
inserts more posterior relative to the short head on the, on the, um, on the biceps tuberosity of the proximal radius. So from an external perspective, again, you've got your biceps, you've got your, your biceps tendon. From an internal perspective, the kind of big things you need to know, and we can get into this, is one is a lateral antibracial cutaneous nerve is, uh, is very close and adherent to the biceps tendon. That can be irritated with and without surgery, but commonly with surgery because you have to retract it out of the way. There's a lacertus, which is a which is your a confluence of of uh, fibers uh, that extend from the medial flexor mass to the biceps tendon, which can kind of tether it in place to some extent. And uh, that's something that we often have to mobilize, particularly in chronic cases, to fully fully mobilize uh, the patient. Uh, and um, and then going deeper, obviously, the, the big thing we worry about is the posterior nerve, which is always lurking really nearby when we're exposing uh, the uh, radial tuberosity. We can talk more about that as we get into the surgical aspects. Yeah, so so perfect. So say you got a you know 50-year-old male is lifting, was helping his friend lift a TV, uh, heard a pop in his arm, and you know, he came to your office, you examined him. Uh, he had a little bit of swelling on his elbow, and you, he got a really uh, a loss of supination. What are you getting next? Are you getting any, any type of imaging next at all? Yeah, great question. Um, I think it depends. Um, I don't yeah. always get an MRI for these. Some are as clear as day. Like I said, the deformity and the bruising and the mechanism injury, I won't. For those that are in between where I'm not convinced, uh, you know, whether it's complete tear or not, I will get an MRI. You could get an ultrasound too. Uh, it depends where you are. I have ready access to an MRI. I don't really know how to get ultrasounds or do ultrasounds or read ultrasounds, but I can read an MRI. So an MRI is my study of choice. Yeah. And, and for, I guess we'll, we can talk about it in, when we, when we get to actually, so if you have a patient that's say is eight weeks, say there's some weeks out, say that, you know, the injury happened eight weeks ago or 12 weeks ago, it's a certain time period where you're like, you know, okay, well the, for this one, I'll get an MRI to assess other qualities or your, or, you know, cause that may be different than your person that comes in three days after lifting the, you know, whatever it may be and has a pop and, you know, is really weak. Does that, does that change at all if you're going to get an MRI? Yeah. I mean, so, so broadly I'll, I'll admit I'm not a big MRI um, order. That's a word okay. um, for certain body parts, like the shoulder. I think it's a mainstay. And for myself as well, when you're looking for soft tissue injuries and derangement of the shoulder, like right. in the wrist and hand, I very infrequently get MRIs. The elbow, I think it can be very handy. And broadly, we get an MRI for two reasons. Most of us don't need it for the diagnosis. It's mostly for, you know, uh, characterizing the diagnosis. So <clears throat> complete tail, partial tear, et cetera. And then retraction of, of some amount. Is there any retraction that's occurring as well? Has occurred as well. Uh, and then some associated injuries that may be mimicking it. Um, uh, this injury, but for the most part, these are pretty straightforward. So to answer your question more specifically, if we're dealing with a chronic injury, I, I do want to see how far the tendon is, how much it's retracted. And you'll see some pretty interesting MRIs over the years. Like I've seen MRIs where the, where the, where the tendons is like flipped up underneath the biceps, like mid brachium. It's really amazing oh, okay. what these things can really pop proximal. So kind of know, knowing where to find it is helpful. So okay. in an acute stage, it helps me confirm the diagnosis um, and makes and helps me know is it a partial or a complete. Um, and then for, for like subacute or delayed, it also helps me make the diagnosis and also helps me better understand where the tendon is. And does it have a chance to get back to the tuberosity for a primary repair or are we augmenting it with a, with a graft? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. 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 
And so let's kind of go to treatment. So what are your, your treatment options? And then one for, I guess, for complete tears. And then you also mentioned partial tears. I want to see kind of your treatment options for yeah. there if you treat those the same. Yeah, partial tears actually I think is a more interesting thing. But uh, for complete tears, it's either operative or non-operative. And, you know, I would say that my observation in the past 20 years or so has been that is the pendulum has swung heavily towards operative. Um, I had a fellow a couple of years back who trained in a very reputable program where they said that they don't treat, they don't repair any of these, which I thought was fascinating. And I would say probably at our center, we're probably aggressive in treating these. Um, and I try to be as practical as I can with this. And I let people know, like, listen, if you, ha if you have this rupture, you can treat this non-surgically. Um, it's not going to shorten your life or cause you any long-term problems, but your biceps will look different from side to side and you will have some um, decrease in strength. Biceps flexion strength typically only decreases about 10%. So that's really not measurable for most folks, not perceptible, I should say. But supination strength, turning against resistance or with power is typically lost by about 50%. So it depends on the individual, uh, whether they want to do this or not. My observation in my own practice that, that men want to have it fixed, they just don't like the idea of not having their biceps in place. Um, and so I think there's a bias towards that, but I think it's important to know, particularly for in-training purposes, it can be treated non-surgically. And for partials, that's always really interesting. So Firstly, I would say that, uh, and this is speaking for myself only, I can't quantify partial tears on an MRI, 10, 30, 50, 80%. I, I can't really tell, uh, particularly in the acute period, it's very difficult to tell. Um, and similarly, I've gone in on partial tears where basically it's like one or two strands intact, or there's a pseudo tendon intact, but the main tendon has been long since retracted. They were all read as partial tears. I just think it's challenging for us and the radio radiologist to really know what a letter partial tear truly is. But broadly, I'm not opposed to treating partial tears non-operatively. My general approach to this is if someone comes with a partial tear, I say, listen, it's a partial tear. These can, you know, quiet down. We can rehab this and we can see how things go. There's, it's not time sensitive. If things don't go well and it keeps hurting or it ruptures, well, then we know what we need to do. Uh, we can proceed with the repair. The, those options have not gone away. They're still there. But if it happened to get better, you happen to get more comfortable, then that's perfectly fine too. So I, I allow non-operative treatment to start and I generally encourage it. Um, and if they either fail it or are persisting pain or, or complete to a rupture, then we go to repair. And, and so you mentioned therapy. So let's quickly, let's go down to non-operative routes. So say you're treating this non-operatively. What does that look like? Are you, are they, are you giving them a hinge elbow brace? Are you limiting their range of motion with flexion? And then when are you starting off with therapy? What is your non-operative treatment? Great question. So when you're, when you are, uh, when you're, when these, when the, the folks listening who are starting their practices, uh, one of the hardest things when you start is understanding how to prescribe therapy when you get into practice, <laughs> all the broad milieu of orthopedic injuries we treat, most folks when they're training really don't understand how we're prescribing therapy, what advice and directions we're giving our therapists. So that really matters. What for me, for distal biceps, I don't limit range of motion. I know I know people do. They block out the terminal extension, which makes sense. So I think it's fine to do. I really focus on uh, progressive TheraBand strengthening, which is less stressful for the tendon, but still allows for some conditioning and adding modalities to it as well. Okay, cool. That's, that's good to know for the non-operative treatment. So that's non-operative treatment. Now let's kind of dive a little bit deeply into operative treatment. What are some of the different options for operative tr treatment? You know, we can break it down into approaches and then we can break it down into how you're going to fix 
you know, how you're going to end up fixing the tenon in your specific technique. Yeah, we often, we often um, dichotomize biceps repairing the two incision, one incision families. And uh, the two incision is traditionally the, the uh, Boyd Anderson technique. And that picture you have here is of the Boyd Anderson technique where you identify your tendon anteriorly, you tag it, then you use a large hemocyte or coker and you deliver it uh, dorsally, um, hugging the radius, making a separate incision on the back of the radius, creating a, a, a trough in the, in the radius and through um, drill holes, delivering that uh, into, uh, delivering the tendon into that. That's your, your two incision. When I was a resident, that's my, how my attendees did them. And uh, I think over time, uh, the one incision technique has become um, popularized as well, which is a variation of a few different things. One incision might mean um, two suture anchors placed in the, in the tuberosity, and then you run the sutures up and down the bicep tendon, and you, and you pull the, the lead limb and you tie off. Uh, the other option is to do the endo button technique where you attach a button to the to the tip of the biceps uh, uh, tendon. I'm looking at your picture here. And the third is what you have here, I think, is the the um, the biceps button or biceps slide technique where you where you're putting a, a whip stitch to the tendon, then through a button that you can kind of slide. So then you enter the the. Um, uh, proximal radius, and we can talk more about the technique a little bit, but I'm just giving kind of broad overview first. You yeah. push the button through the back cortex, and then you tension, you slide the tendon into the into the hole, into the trough you've created, and then you put it, you tie it off at that point, you put a tenodesis screw to reinforce it, and you can tie off over the tenodesis screw as well. I've done all those techniques across my training and my practice, uh, and I've graduated to just using the, the bicep slide technique. Um, that's been popularized by Arthrex. I have no conflict of interest with them. Um, I find it's a very slick technique. Um, it can be done all through one incision. I also find that it's safer. I've I always felt that the the two incision was was kind of scary because it's a blind stab, uh, essentially through the um, through the middle of the forearm. And as right. a as someone who does a lot of nerve surgery, I've been on the other side of people having nerve injuries that I've had to manage with that technique. I know it's a tried and true technique. I'm not judging anyone who does it. I, even in my own practice, it's almost 50-50. Half of them are doing it one incision, half are still doing two incisions. So it's perfectly fine. It's it's proven to work. But in my own hands, I find that the the one incision is 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 very is safer, I'll just say, because I can I see down to the tuber, I dissect down to the tuberosity, debris the tuberosity, I expose it. I can keep the form in full supination to get as as anatomic as possible. I can I can make sure to retract where the push interosseous nerve is going to be. I place my wire across the uh, guide wire across the radius uh, in a direction away. We cheat ulnar away from the from the um, push interosseous nerve, um, and you can really dunk that tendon in with a lot of confidence. And you can see that sucker drop in there. You tie it off, and then you have two more points of reinforcement. You know, so you actually have three points of reinforcement with that technique, which is good. When I was doing the suture anchor technique. Um, you would do the repair and as you were closing, you just kind of saw that the biceps and start to kind of pull upward. And <laughs> I, I would imagine that yeah. they, it still worked, but I guess like a pseudo tendon right. would form around it, but it just wasn't as, as satisfying as, uh, as when you can lock it down into the, into the bone with the one incision as a uh, bicep slide. Yeah. And, and I've seen, at least I think now at this point, four different ways of people doing just a one incision. I've seen a transverse incision at the crease of the elbow, a transverse incision 
about three centimeters distal to the crease of the elbow, a vertical incision, and then a vertical, then a transverse, which you can extend up medially in case you need to do an allograft or something. Which one is, is your preferred technique for? Yeah, um, I've seen all those. Two. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I've seen all those as well. I just do a longitudinal um, starting probably a centimeter distal to the antecubital fossa crease, antecubital crease, and go straight distal. The nice thing is you're often not, when you do the transverse, you could be too proximal, too distal. Yep. If you do longitudinal, you know, you can extend whichever way you need to, to get to where you need to be. So you, you're not wrong per se, but you can be too proximal, too distal. And the mistake, people get into trouble with the surgery when they're not adequately exposed. You just have to expose adequately to get down there to be safe. You just got to be safe. Um, and I think one of the things that tends to separate uh, uh, hand surgeons and nerve surgeons uh, like myself and other orthopedic surgeons is that we're not afraid of nerves. And most of us like to know where they are. So we're protecting them. Whereas I find a lot of folks traditionally in orthopedics are just afraid of the nerves. So they don't want to see it unless they see the better. But that's when right. people get into a little bit of trouble. Um, starting from the LABC down, like the first thing I'll look for is the LABC. I don't go aggressively neuralizing it. I just want to spread and see, okay, there it is. So that I can put a, an army navy around it because one of the most common problems after these cases is uh, LABC irritation, or sensory irritation. Um, so I just want to know where it is, mobilize it. It's often caught in some of the uh, some of the hematoma and just kind of retract it. Going down further, the vascular leash is there of Henry that people get in trouble with that. Um, there's a lot of ways to manage that. People like to do clips, which I think is fine. I just tie things off as I go down. Um, but I go right down the tuberosity direct view. I'm not, no guesswork involved with it. And I visualize the tuberosity. I don't put homins in there because that's when you can get in trouble with the PIN, particularly on the radial side of the, of the radius. So I will not put any homins in there. Uh, although it's very tempting to, cause that would be really helpful. Um, I'm always using army navies, which is more annoying, but it's safer. And I go right down to tuberosity. I always have an assistant for this case who's max supinating. And I'll yell at them a few times during the case, palm all the way up, palm all the way up. Because if they get lazy and they're not paying attention, now you're 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 preparing the wrong side of the of the biceps tendon of the of the bicipital uh, tuberosity. So palm all the way up, two sends, I'm sorry, two army navies in, and then a debride with the ronger, um, and then proceed um with uh, with the guide wire and the drilling. Yeah, I was gonna say that you just touched on all the all the high points. <laughs> I, I don't want to steal your thunder. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, this is your thunder. You you did it perfect. You got all the all the points, especially even 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 the board style questions because you know they'll ask us uh, the most common injured nerve, which you mentioned was the LABC uh, lateral anterior cutaneous nerve, and then you also talked about the PIN nerve and how to how to avoid that. And again, for those listening, you have a great video on how to do this <laughs> on uh, uh, on Jomi. Um, so definitely, those listening, they want to see how you do it. Go and go and check that video out. Very very uh, in depth and, and very technical. Um, and so what we're I guess looking at outcomes wise, how um, how are your like how in your experience how are patients doing? Are they getting all their their supination strength? They're getting all their their flexion strength. Are they going back to their sport? Are these typically the weekend warriors that are getting back to it? How, how are these how are these patients typically doing? Yeah, I tell people I anticipate a full recovery from the surgery, um, barring any unforeseen complications. Um, I think from the the research perspective, um, like you put on this, is that the, the book answer is 90% re re recover um, flexion and, I'm, I'm sorry, supination strength. 
there's often a measurable difference, but not a often a perceptible difference, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. So there's a measurable distance. And that's also comes into play with, uh, or there's been arguments made that certain techniques provide better uh, supination strength. Ultimately, the one of the main arguments for the Boyd Anderson is because it, it is a more uh, medial insertion of the biceps tendon relative to the tuberosity that gives you more supination power. Yeah. Whereas the one incision technique is always, um, you always enter anterior to the tuberosity uh, in supination. So the argument is you get less supination strength. Boyd Anderson, you enter more medially. Um, so you can, like, there's more of a ham effect. Um, and I, I think, I think that makes total sense to me, uh, scientifically and anatomically. I think, I, don't quote me. I can't, I can't be, I can't quote it, but I believe that's been borne out in, in biomechanical studies as well. Um, but I don't think it matters from a patient perception perspective, those type of differentials and strength. Um, so for me, it's not enough to change it. And moreover that technically I find that one incision just much better for, at least in my hands, but I don't think it's wrong. But like I said, one of the strong arguments for the two incision is the arguably better ham effect and supination power. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned a little bit earlier, or I guess we briefly talked about, you know, we, we talked about getting for chronic tears. We talked about imaging and seeing kind of how far retracted it was. And so, you know, there's, there's some, sometimes I'll see, you know, cases posted where you're going to do a distal biceps and you may do an allograft augmentation. Um, in your, in your experience, when should you be prepared to do one? And then are you doing them? And then uh, what is your indications for it? Yeah, I think anytime you're dealing with a subacute biceps tendon, so I would say four or more weeks out, I think you should have a graft nearby, um, an, an Achilles graft or a semi-T graft. I typically use Achilles um, nearby. Uh, that's when you could get into trouble uh, where it could be really retracted and it's not gonna it's not gonna make it down back to its footprint at the tuberosity. Um, I've done, I've done patients who are three to six months out and they, there was no question I was going to use a graft right going into it, but there's kind of that, su that sub acute four to six week window is kind of this gray area where it's, it's useful to have. So just have it in, at, within ready use, um, because it's, it sucks when you need a graft and it's not available and, and depending where you operate, plenty of places have plenty of graft and plenty of places don't. So like, you just have to make sure you've got what you need just in case. Yeah. And, and what is your, how do you fix it? Your, your technique for using the allograft, how do you, how do you actually, I know there are many different techniques Some people put a split in the Achilles and, and bring it up and, and I don't know if there's a perfect technique for it, but I take the Achilles tendon uh, without a bone block, uh, no bone block. And, um, and then I will um, overlay. And I, so first of all, there's a pretty big exposure. So I'll expose, I go, curvilinear around the lateral aspect of the biceps elevated so I can okay. see the, the distal part of the biceps, mobilize the tendon, um, make sure I have a good view of LABC. Um, so I'm not going to capture that in anything. Um, and then I lay the, the, the Achilles tendon over top of the biceps and biceps tendon, kind of make sure there's adequate overlap between the native tendon and the graft, but the, the graft is going adequately distal to adequately distal past the, the, the graft. I'm sorry, adequately distal past the native stump, I should say, because yep. it's the graft that's going to be ultimately inserted. And then I, I'll whip stitch them together as one. 
so that the graft and the native tendon are whip stitched together at one. So for a period of time, they're together. And then when you go past the native tendon, it's just going to be the, the graft tendon. And the proximal part, I just sew in, I just got, uh, fan out the biceps. I'm sorry, the fan out the proximal part of the Achilles graft, graft and sew it to the biceps musculature. That part is probably not necessary. It just kind of covers everything nicely and there's more confluence, if you will. I doubt yep. that makes any difference, really. The hard thing to know is how long of a graft that you need. And um, the, you don't want to make it too short where now you have an, a, another short graft. So now you're still stuck. You don't want to make it too long and and there's no tension on the repair, right? So it's a little bit of the Goldilocks. It shouldn't be too short. It shouldn't be too long. So my general rule of thumb is that the tendon should be able to, to touch the tuberosity at least at 90 degrees. And if you can touch the tuberosity at least at 90 degrees, then in time that should stretch out. Um, and again, it, it's it's a hard it's a hard tell sometimes. But if you're putting it in and it's totally loose, then it's not going to do anything. It's got to be under some tension. Yeah, so you want it at least at 90 degrees where it touches the tuberosity. Yeah. And you because there's also gonna everything. there's also gonna be creep in this, right? So it's graft yeah. on graft. They're not gonna incorporate right away. So there's gonna be a little bit, they're just they're just collagen. It's just gonna stretch a little bit. So I want to put these in a little bit tight. Um, because I know they're gonna loosen in time anyways. And and, and what's your post-op protocol for is yeah, it, you know, was it the same for both, or what was your what did protocol? Yeah. I think that I'm probably a little bit more conservative with my post-op protocol compared to other folks. I think I've heard all sorts of post-op protocols from colleagues and there are many folks that put people on a soft dressing and get them going. I think that's probably fine. Um, I'm a little bit conservative with this because I don't want to have to go back in on these and people can be, if they don't have any guardrails, they can be, they can be pretty aggressive after these type of surgeries. So what I typically do is I put them in a, in a post-op splint. Uh, and get them into the office within a few days of surgery, two, three, four days, and I get them in a hinged elbow brace. And I have in a hinged elbow brace for about four to six weeks where I'm dialing in progressive extension. They have full flexion the whole time in the brace, but I'm kind of dialing in progressive extension. So they get the full extension over four to six weeks. So they're kind of stretching out the repair slowly. And we're also preventing an inadvertent extension of the arm like right. at sleep and other times. They do the, They have the brace for four to six weeks. I actually don't do PT with them during that time. I'm just letting the tendon some time to, to take, if you will, uh, and to, and that healing to occur. And then I start P, at PT at about four to six weeks. And it's progressive TheraBand strengthening. And I don't introduce weights till 12 weeks. 12 so weeks. I don't have to do any free weights till 12 weeks. And I always tell my patients progressive, uh, I tell them TheraBands is not sexy, but it's very effective. It gives you nice, consistent tension on the tendon without that kind of herky-jerky motion that you can get with weights. Um, and they're deceivingly effective because as you get up in bands with greater resistance, they're pretty tight um, and they're hard yep. to move. And, uh, and then once they get to 12 weeks, I cut them loose. They can do whatever they want. I let them go to the gym, I let them lift. Um, and I just, I just advise them that go slow in the beginning. Don't start off right where you left off with, with your, with your curling and whatever you're doing. And I advise them it's going to be mostly curls and road type maneuvers that are going to get you press will not hurt you. It's things that you're bringing to yourself. Any kind of any kind of curling, rowing are the classic ones that people are going to feel that um, some strain on their repair. So go slowly. And it, typically at three months, folks are not 100%. Usually they're about 70% in terms mm -hmm. of their recovery feeling, strength feeling, et cetera. And I tell them it takes about another three months or so before you feel like you've fully gotten there. But I, I unrestrict them at that point, let them get there on their own. 
any any difference if you if this is a professional athlete in your pro stop protocol? Oh man, with the pros, you we go so fast, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. There's a lot of pressure on these guys. These poor guys yeah. get back to play sometimes. So um I feel like almost anytime we we deal with a pro athlete, which is very frequently, it's almost half, half the rehab uh, strategies yeah. to do for the general public. And sometimes that's born out of because you know there's obviously a lot of pressure for them to play. Some of it's because these guys are generally in just in top physical shape. And also because they have, you know, un- unlimited resources of people kind of like monitoring and enhancing their recovery. So, but we tend to go even faster whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Uh, well, this has been a, a great, great episode. I, I learned a lot, you know, still uh, just from speaking to you about distal biceps injuries um, and, and again, commendments to you and, and, and congrats to all, all that you've done and all you, that you'll continue to do and everything that you're working on. Uh, any, any last words that you want the audience to know about distal biceps injuries before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, it's a fun, it's a fun diagnosis. It's a great surgery to do. Patients lo- uh, enjoy it. Um, it's, it's something that you can do that really helps restore people, which is really the crux of what we do in orthopedics. And, uh, um, you mentioned that are the, the sites where they can watch these videos, we have a great article of this in Joe May Journal of uh, Medical Insight. And also, if you go to ViewMedi, which is uh, con- completely free, uh, I have a channel called Roth and Hand Surgery. We have all of those videos on available to anyone to view whenever they like. Yeah. And, and where can the people listening to this follow you if they want to just learn some more or, or just follow you just to, just to tune in and see whenever the next, you know, anything else that you have <laughs> going on? Sure, sure. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely active in some social media stuff. So I'm I'm on Instagram uh, at Ilias Ortho, all one word. On LinkedIn, just my first name, last name, Asif Ilyas. I'm on Facebook, but I don't really use it because I don't really like it. Um, so my main two are, are Instagram and LinkedIn. I definitely post a lot of stuff, interesting cases and, you know, news related to orthopedics and other things in medicine and surgery. Well, Dr. Ilyas, again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Learned a lot talking to you. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to come on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, we hope that you all enjoyed this episode with Dr. Ilyas. Again, he did a great job going over distal biceps, tendon injuries. If you have any questions, concerns, feel free to email us at nailedithortho.com. And uh, without further ado, we will see everybody next episode. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review as that would help us out a bunch. Offer a revolutionary patient experience and expand your diagnostic and treatment offerings with the Arthrex Nano Experience. Backed by a continuous iterative process that incorporates advancements in technology and surgeon feedback, the nanoscope system and nanoarthroscopy instrumentation are the tools of choice for instant diagnostic imaging and extremely minimally invasive arthroscopy procedures, many of which can be performed in an outpatient or ASC setting with patient-specific anesthesia options. Furthermore, Arthrex provides unparalleled surgeon support and resources, including the nanoexperience.com, a patient education website illustrating the science and benefits of nanoarthroscopy and directing patients to surgeons in their local area. Learn more at nano.arthrex.com.